Hey, well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and those of you who may not be uh, family members of Gospel Hope, but you are friends who have grown to watch us from your various places. Uh, we are continuing today in our series entitled Knowing God. And uh, the purpose of that series is that we recognize that during this unique season, this COVID-19 season or the quarantine season, whatever we're calling it, during this unique season, anything that is global in its nature or uh, deep in how much it reaches and impacts us personally, usually awakens our eternal appetite or maybe causes our antennas to go up. It causes us to want to ask crucial questions about the ultimate reality. Even if you're a person who does not believe in God, you do believe that there is an ultimate reality. And when something, again, affects us deeply and personally or affects all people globally, we begin to want answers. And uh, as a body of Christ, it is our responsibility to make sure that as we reach for answers, we get them from God's word. And if something affects us deeply, that it is uh, uh, drawing us to have a deeper knowledge of God. And so it is our prayer that through this series, whether you're being introduced to the unknown God or whether you already know him and you're simply deepening your love, affection and desire for God and your curiosities are piqued about what's happening during this time, we pray that this series would give you the necessary stuff to responsibly go to God's word and to seek his face and to get answers to these questions that regardless of how long you've been a Christian or regardless of how near or far you are to religion, they all uh, plague our hearts. We all have questions about this time. And so we want to help people to know God more deeply. And so today we're going to continue in that series. If you've not been with us, and this is your first time uh, kind of checking in on the Knowing God series, I want to ask you to go to our website, and you can also see the previous messages that we've already preached, kicking off the series in our first message. And then, of course, last week we talked about the incommunicable attributes of God. Incommunicable, meaning those attributes that God uniquely uh, uh, has within himself and uh, he does not share them with us, so to speak. We don't really participate in them. We are impacted by them, but we don't share in them. This week, we're going to be talking about the communicable attributes of God. And those are attributes that the Lord himself has and yet has an expectation that we would participate in them also. And so we want to look at God's word and have a, uh, an understanding of exactly how God expects us to participate in these divine attributes. Those attributes, again, that he's shown us in his word are his but he shares them with those of us who are also his children. But before we start, let's pray. Uh, Father God, I come before you this morning thanking you and praising you for every single opportunity to open the pages of your word and to preach and to teach them. You've told us that your word is living, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is active, O oh God. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents, that there is nothing uh, hidden from its view. You've told us that your word has incredible value for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the person that would take them seriously would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord God, we want to experience the full promise and the full purpose of what your word has to offer, and we ask now that you would, Lord God, just enable us by your Holy Spirit both me the speaker and the rest of us as the hearer Lord God to 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 gain as much as you've intended for us to gain from this brief walk through God's word and it is in Jesus name that we pray amen 
So as I mentioned, today we're going to be covering the communicable attributes of God, the communicable attributes. That word communicable is not unfamiliar to any of us because during this COVID-19 season, the pandemic by its very nature is a communicable virus. That is the very reason that we are not in the building together, the reason that we are doing church this way virtually, the reason that we're all practicing social distancing is because this this uh, plague or this particular virus is highly communicable, which means something about it can affect another person. So regardless of who has it, if I'm too close to you, those same symptoms will become a part of my life. And I hope as a part of that, this whole idea of something being communicable, I hope this is what's going to happen in all of our lives, that we would become sick of God. I want you to soak in there for a minute. I hope that you and I will become sick of God throughout this series. Now, what I mean by sick is not sick in the traditional means that you're frustrated with him and his ways, but I hope that as you're practicing social distancing, that you're not also practicing spiritual distancing. I hope that we are getting as close as we possibly can to God, and as a result of that closeness with him, something of his communicable attributes are starting to infect our lives and affect the way that we live. And so I hope you're getting sick of God. That is, whatever is in him, it's become catchy to us. And so I want to explore what some of the symptoms of those communicable attributes look like in our lives today as we walk through um, this particular segment of our series. What I'd like to do is just first of all show you a list of the attributes. Depending on how you categorize them, there are quite a few, 15 to 20 communicable attributes, and I'm going to just share them with you right now. All right, so just from the top, spirituality, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the truthfulness of God, the goodness, the love, holiness, righteousness, the jealousy of God, that's a unique one. God is never jealous of human beings. He is jealous for us, and he expects us to participate in that deep desire for things that are good. Many of you as parents, you know what it means to be jealous for something. You're jealous for the safety of your children. If you find out that your child is uh, on the cusp of some danger, you'll elbow any and everything that you have to to get out of the way to get to that child. You're jealous for them. If you find out that your child's health and safety is at risk by going to a particular school or a daycare, you do everything in your power because you're jealous for them to get them out of that situation. That's what the jealousy of God corresponds to. I want to be clear on that because some people trip up over this idea that God would have a jealousy. So not green with envy or covetousness, but a deep desire for his children. And he asked us to participate in that. So moving on, the wrath of God. We are told to be angry, but sin not. Uh, will or freedom. The omnipotence of God, while we don't have omnipotence, that is, have all power, we do have some power, and the Lord asks us to do things with it that correspond to his will. Perfection, blessedness, and beauty. Now, if you see all of these on the screen, it could be quite a staggering or overwhelming list, and that's okay. Uh, one of the things that I have come to discover during this unique quarantine period is that there were tasks that formerly, for me, were very mundane. I could kind of do them in my sleep, but now they've become much more thoughtful. I've had to be far more premeditative in the way that I do them. And one of those activities is going to the grocery store. Because I don't want to be around a lot of people, and I also want to be able to get to the store at an optimal window where there's few crowds, but it's full of groceries and I can find everything that I need. When I make a list, it is with a high degree of thoughtfulness. Each and every item on my grocery list, because I don't want to have to go back for another two or three weeks or four weeks if I can affect that, 
Everything on my list affects, it, it has both an emotional and a mental connection. I was the one who opened the refrigerator and saw we're running low on that and we need that. I was the one who thought, hey, we are trying to make a particular recipe or particular meal and these are ingredients that we're lacking in our cabinets or in our cupboard. Or I went out to the deep freezer and saw that we were running low on this particular kind of meat. And so I saw that. But you know what I've noticed about myself? I have a much higher tendency to take ownership for finding the things on my list when I made the list versus at times past when someone would just hand me a list. You know what I'm talking about. When someone just hands you a list of groceries, you may see something there and not fully understand the handwriting and say, well, I don't have time for this. I'll come back later or I'll tell them I couldn't find them. Maybe you can understand the handwriting, but you question whether or not you really need that item because you don't have that emotional, mental connection with how it got on the list. You're prone to skip it. Perhaps you see another item on the list and you know what? I've circled the grocery store several times. I'm not able to find this particular item. And because of its difficulty to locate, you might be prone to skip it and come back and get it later. Well, why do I share that particular detail? Well, because I just gave you this crazy list of attributes, and it's my list. It hasn't become your list yet. But what we wanna do throughout the course of today's message is I want to unpack for you the need, the emotional, mental connection between each one of these attributes and how they correspond to the person of God so that that list that I just showed you on the screen becomes your list and we are not prone to skip them or move past them because we can't understand them or we don't, under, or we don't know where to find them or because they may be not quite legible to us. But I want us to savor that list because it's something that we need to have expressed in our lives. But it isn't just my desire. The Bible would actually help us to know in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and you should hear this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Did you hear that? The scriptures call us to be imitators of God. So those attributes that I just read, that isn't my list. It's the Bible's list. It's a group of attributes that the Lord says he wants to be imitated or emulated in our lives. It is not possible to imitate someone without studying them, watching them, observing them, reading about them, con contemplating the nuances of their character and their nature, how they act, how they behave, how they are, looking at them in, in the most intimate ways. It is impossible to imitate anyone effectively without spending a great deal of time with them and watching them and knowing them. And so that's what I hope will happen as we respond to the biblical imperative to be imitators of God, that we will not just treat these attributes as a grocery list of items given to us by a preacher, but they would become highly personalized and we would have a deep emotional, mental, and spiritual connection with them and want to understand them. Why would God want me to do these things? Why does he want us to be imitators of him? So the Lord asked us to be imitators of him, but there's something else I want to unpack for us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Notice how the scriptures assume that the ability to imitate God in any meaningful way is going to happen on the foundation of a relationship 
we are dearly beloved children, but not just not estranged children, not orphans, but dearly beloved children, which means that in order to effectively imitate God in any meaningful way, we must appeal to him, know him and understand him in the same way that he has appealed to us as a dear father. And so we're going to explore this. And when we do that, I'm hopefully going to help you to put some, as we called it in the first message, some wheels and handles on these concepts. Now, one of the sets of wheels and handles that I want to give you today is that as we explore these communicable attributes, is that we're going to put them into three major categories, natural, mental, and moral. Natural, they correspond to the nature of God. Mental, the, mind, the mentality of God. And moral, the behaviors of God or his, the standards of God and what he considers to be right and wrong, good or bad. And then he calls us to participate also in these natural, mental, and moral attributes. Some of them I'm going to condense together so we don't have to cover all 20 of them, but we are going to cover quite a few. So get your fingers ready. If you're turning in the Bible or electronically or thank God for technology, you'll be able to go back, listen to the message again and again so that you can get these. But God has called us to be imitators of him. Well, I always love to ask the question when I see the scriptures place a high call or demand on the believer's life. If the Lord expects me to be an imitator of him as one of his dearly beloved children, what has he done besides just tell me to do it? Well, don't be surprised. Well, voila, God has actually done something. That is, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, a common text that many of us know, the scriptures read this way. For those who he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the first among many brethren. So the Bible tells us that when I place saving faith in Jesus Christ and effectively become one of the Lord's beloved children, which is the prerequisite for now being able to imitate him, right? It says that God makes another promise to us, that he does something very powerful. It says that he, for those that he foreknew, because we want to know God, those that he foreknew, he takes the first move and predestines us to be conformed to the image of his son. So now God is actively making a transformation of us, transformation of my nature and my character, my mindset and my morality. See how this works? So if God is actively transforming or conforming me to the image of his son, he is setting the stage in my character to actually be able to display the communicable attributes. Or as the kind of the capstone or the headline for our message is this, as I am being conformed to the image of Christ, the communicable attributes should be more visible in my life. You should see it on the screen, but I love to repeat myself because I think redundance is a great learning tool. As I am being conformed to the image of Christ, the communicable attributes should become more and more visible in my life. Now, when you hear that, as I am being conformed to the image of Christ, I hope that none of you in times past thought that being conformed to Christ's image meant that over the course of your life, you would one day wake up, look in the mirror and look at your hands and say, wow, I 
I'm starting to resemble a mid-30-year-old Jewish man from the ancient Near East, and I'm falling in love with Birkenstocks and speak to my family and friends in parables. No, that's not what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. What it does mean to be conformed to the image of Christ is that my very nature is being changed, which now kind of tees us up to talk about this first category of communicable attributes, which are the natural attributes. There are two in particular that I think would serve us well to know, and they are the fact that the Lord is spirit and the Lord is perfect. So he is spiritual and he lives in perfection. These are communicable attributes. Sounds hard to swallow, but follow me carefully. The first point is simply this. Because God has changed my nature, I can properly respond to his nature. So because God has changed my nature in making conform me to the image of his son, he's changing my nature. I am now able to properly respond to his nature. And his nature is primarily marked by two things. He is spirit and he is perfect. Well, what does God expect us to do with that? Well, we obviously have a spirit, but we are not just spirit at all, right? We are not just spirit in total, but God is. The scriptures tell us, or, or, or at least the, the base definition of God as spirit is this. He is not made of anything, nor is he like anything. Now, the Bible speaks to this in John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus meeting with the woman um, um, who had come there to, to, to get water. And he refers to, he tells her when they are having a conversation about God, that God is spirit. And they that worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. So responding to this communicable attribute that God is spirit places two levels of responsibility or invites us into two levels of reverence of God. The way we worship and also the way we fellowship and commune with him. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, the Bible says this, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Notice who's doing the work. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So there is a certain level of communion that I have with the Lord that is spiritual, and that's how we are, that's how it's of a communicable attribute. And then we are called to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. To worship the Lord in spirit and in truth means, means I cannot worship him uh, like a material God. I can't worship him with material things. I won't worship him like an idol. I worship him as he is. He is a God who lives in spirit. Therefore, my worship must be spiritual. Now, that means I cannot worship God if I don't have spiritual communion or I'm not currently in relationship with him. I want you to be careful about something. We have a tendency in our culture to get up on stages when something fortuitous or great or awesome is happening in our lives, even if we don't know God, and we want to send him uh, high fives, blow kisses, or salute his name. That's not worship. That's not accurate praise. The Lord says that those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. To be spiritual worship, it is worship that matches the nature and character of God because he wants to commune with us, not just hear great compliments from us. But even in what we say, it says that we must worship him in spirit and in truth, meaning the things that we say about God need to not just be cute and complimentary. They need to be biblical. They need to correspond with how God himself has revealed himself in scripture. That's how we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let me give you a personal example. If someone in your friends or family circle or on your job were to spread an untrue but positive rumor about you, Hey, did you hear old Rod hit the jackpot during the COVID-19 market swings? This dude is 
all of a sudden filthy rich. And that was a rumor, a positive rumor, but not a true rumor. And everybody's running up to me now asking to borrow money from me. Or everybody's wondering, uh, uh, how much am I going to donate to the church? There's all of these, because of this positive rumor, there's all of this negative and aggravating press that I'm getting of people coming to me and saying things that are not true. Just because it's a positive rumor or a positive uh, 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 thought about me doesn't mean that it's pleasing to me. You see that? So for a person to say something about God that they would deem to be positive still doesn't translate to worship if it doesn't correspond to the truth about that individual. So to say nice and complimentary things about God isn't tantamount to worship if they don't match what God has said about himself in the truth of his word. We are called to worship him in spirit and in truth. The next thing that we're called to do, it says, is to recognize that God is perfect. What does that mean? By definition, that when God, the perfection of God is defined this way. He completely possesses all excellent qualities and is lacking nothing that is desirable. Okay, well, how am I supposed to be perfect? I'm going to talk about that because Jesus seemed to expect it. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says these very simple words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. So I'm supposed to live a life where I'm lacking nothing? The call to perfection isn't suggesting that we are morally without spot or wrinkle, and we should be, but the way we pursue moral perfection is that the moment that we recognize sin in our lives, that we do not delay to go to the throne and get forgiveness and the cleansing of Jesus's blood to bring us to a place of moral perfection. But also perfection means that we should be people who are lacking nothing. Like James said that the person who, is, who, who, who suffers well, in James chapter 1 he says, count it all joy when you uh, uh, encounter diverse trials because through that process your, your patience and your perseverance will be worked out and there's a level of maturity that will happen in the life. And, and one of your translations actually uses this word, and that person shall be perfect, lacking nothing. The word perfection is more of an agricultural reference for us. You know a piece of fruit that is perfect? It is one that is filled with juice and ripeness and it is ready to be consumed. That's the kind of perfection. It is, it's a piece of fruit that is both worm-free and fully ripe. And so what the call to perfection is one that while we live a life that is without stain, which we can only do through relationship with Jesus because we will need his regular forgiveness, and one where we are constantly pursuing maturity. We are growing in all things. Hopefully, this message series will help us to grow in that area. Not just pursue, you know, forgiveness every time I find sin, but we should also be growing in grace. We should be growing in knowledge. We should be growing in wisdom and growing in stature because that's exactly what Jesus did. And guess whose image we're being conformed to? That of Jesus. And so we are called to participate in the natural attributes of the Lord being spirit and him being perfect. Now, even after having explained how we might do these things, I get it. It sounds like a pretty lofty call that is beyond our personal abilities. And you know what? You're probably right. But here's what else is right. God constantly calls us to be something beyond our natural ability so that we are absolutely convinced of our need for his supernatural ability. I'll say it again. God constantly calls us beyond our natural ability so that we constantly see our need for his supernatural ability. I want you to notice that from the very beginning of the message, the ability to embody the attributes, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to have spiritual communion, to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, 
All of those abilities were all made possible because God supernaturally made the first move and made the first set of promises. So if you're reeling from the prospect of having to live like this, you should be because that should drive us to our knees to say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I have to totally surrender to you. How do you want me to live like this before you? And so now you can see that living out the communicable attributes or even reflecting the fruit of the spirit, which we'll get to in the final part of the message, is not just a function of having a spiritual checklist or grocery list where we mark off and say, well, I did this today or I did that today. It has to be God coming in with his supernatural ability to enable us in our regular and natural ability to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Let's go to our next point. So that was that covered for us the natural uh, communicable attributes, the ones that are unique to God's nature or part of his nature. What about these mental attributes? When it comes to the mental attributes, there are three that I want to cover. Will, wisdom, and truth. Uh, now, as we unpack these, there's a, a kind of a, a first verse that I want us to take a look at. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age. Here it comes. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern. And as a, uh, the, the, the word there, discern, means literally to prove that through the transformation of your mind, you might actually prove what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. So God literally, through the cleaning of our mind, wants to prove what his will is. And so we're going to get there in just a moment because that's exactly what it takes. Because God is renewing my mind, I can effectively now reflect the Christ mind. So the mental attributes of God can only, the mental communicable attributes can only be expressed in my life when I am thinking like the Christ. The Bible tells us in another place over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, ask a rhetorical question and then it answers it. Who has known the mind of the Lord that they might instruct him? No one. Rhetorical question. Hard pause. Next statement. But we do have the mind of Christ. And so the Lord has given to his dearly beloved children, who he calls to imitate him, the mind of Christ. And because God is renewing our mind daily, often, moment by moment, I can effectively reflect the Christ mind. Well, what does it look like for the Christ mind to be reflected in me? Let's go back to our grocery store analogy. Can you imagine, in times like these, having a grocery list, going to the grocery store, and seeing all of the items that you need, and just beautifully perusing and watching them as you go down the aisles, and saying, they're there, I recognize them, there's iodized there's iodine salt, oh, there are the eggs, Oh, look, there's the spinach. Oh, look, there is the manchego. Oh, look, there's the Hellman's. Oh, look, there's the sriracha. Oh, here's uh, everything. Else. Here's the butter. Here's the Philadelphia cream cheese. Can you imagine just taking your list, walking down the aisles, and walking back to your car with an empty cart? Because you just use the list to recognize the groceries, but not to take any of them home, open the tops, and implement them into your life, not to consume them. Well, to not have the Lord actively renew, renewing our mind is exactly what we would be doing. We're just learning to recognize attributes like we're preparing for some final exam at a Bible school or seminary, but that's not what God has called us to. 
He doesn't just want us to walk down the aisles and be able to check off that we know them or we could regurgitate them. He wants us to open the can of his will and pour it into our lives, that it becomes a part of how we effectively are. And that can only happen when our mind is being renewed by the Lord daily so that we think like the Christ. Not having a God complex, but we think with the great humility and the beauty of Christ that was always and constantly submitted to the will and wisdom of God and wouldn't make a single decision or move forward in any way unless it was fully approved by his Father. That's the mindset that the Lord invites us into with the communicable attributes of his will, his wisdom, and his truth. So let's look at these. What is the will of God? The will of God is defined as his attribute that says that God both desires it is the desire and the determination of God to bring about an end of his choosing for himself and for the creation. Will. God has will. And it is the desire and the determination to bring about an end of his choosing both for himself and for his creation. Take a step back. That truly is a communicable attribute, isn't it? We've been made in the image of God. We have will. Every one of us can identify with the fact that we have a desire and a determination to bring about a certain end of our choosing and desire that is both pleasing to us and pleasing for our creation, or at least pleasing, pleasing for the segment of creation, whether it be friends, family, job, a certain address, that we have been given unique responsibility for. We have a will also. And the Lord has an expectation for what we would do with our wills as a reflection of our communion with him. All right? Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We have also received an inheritance from him, him being God, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works, every, who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. That's God's will. But then look at what the Lord wants to happen in the life of the believer. I want to revisit verse 2 of the passage we just read just a few moments ago. It says that in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this age, self-will, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern, or as again, some, some other translations put it, that you may prove what is the good and pleasing and perfect will. So God actually wants human beings to have a will, because he gave them to us, and the way that we express that communicable attribute is that through the way we live our lives, we actually prove to the world what his will is through this renewal of our mind. And this is what the Lord wants to do through us. So we are in a constant mode of yielding our will to his. Or as Matthew chapter 6 would put it when the Lord taught his disciples and us by extension to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See how the lifestyle of prayer where we are communing and conversating with God is actually an invite for God to take his will and express it through us in the earth as an expression of our own will. And so the communicable attribute of God's will is expressed when we, when we align our will with his will. Let's look at wisdom. Wisdom, by definition, is God always chooses the best goals and the best means to achieve those goals. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to fulfill those goals. This is the wisdom of God. 
I want you to just pause for a moment and think about all of the questions that permeate our lives about this current season that we're in with this COVID-19 thing. Do we concede in our character, in our lives, do we submit, do we concede to the idea that the goal of God and the best means to achieve that goal, God is still doing that right now? We have to look at what's happening around us right now and not just say this is an unfortunate event because it is unfortunate in many regards. People are sick. People are dying. Economies are doing all this other kind of stuff. There are many negative things that are happening. But at a macro level, at the, at the meta level, we must recognize that in the wisdom of God, this somehow brings him glory in some way, either in its outworking or in its, in, its, in its finished product or in the way that it's being worked out now. Because the wisdom of God is defined that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to achieve those goals. Romans chapter 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. This is so important. How unsearchable his judgments and how untraceable his ways. Maybe some of your grandmothers used to say the Lord moves in mysterious ways. Well, this is the text that she's referring to, that the Lord's ways are untraceable. Not that he's playing games and working out secrets, but the, the deal is that God, because he is omnipotent, omniscient, knows all things and has all power and eternal. He sees, he declares the end before the beginning because he lives outside of time and space and his perception of what is good and what is right and what is best is not limited by a, a local immediate second by second experience. As he applies his wisdom to us, it looks untraceable and unsearchable. What in the world is he doing? Uh, in this moment, I am reminded of the great artist of our day, sketch artist, who can start out with just a few squiggly lines. And I'm looking there with the untrained eye, having no idea what's in the artist's mind, watching them squiggle and shade and squiggle and shade. And then sometimes it is in the middle of the, of the sketch. Other times it's not until the very end. I'm like, oh my goodness. This man is drawing a picture of Agatha Christie, or he's drawing a picture of a raven, or he's drawing a picture of a great mountain range. But inside the mind of the sketch artist, he was always aware of what he was doing. But for us, it was untraceable. For us, it wasn't discernible until it had reached a certain level of completion. And ladies and gentlemen, the same thing happens to us even now as we experience the wisdom of God being played out in this moment. But how is the wisdom of God a communicable attribute? Well, James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that we must, James 1 5 tells us that we must pursue the wisdom of God also. It says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he abradeth not. Let him ask in faith and God will give him the wisdom that he need if he's in a moment where he doesn't know what to do. And so God invites us into wisdom as this communicable attribute or gives it to us and then says, all right, I've got these unsearchable ways, but I want to give you wisdom as well. And so the Lord invites us to it in that way. He invites us to enjoy the great sketches that he is working out in our creation so that the untraceableness of his ways actually become attractive and a means and a reason for worship. Also, the wisdom of God is painted for us in this picture in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. We know this, trust in the Lord uh, with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways and he will guide your paths. 
Do not consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from we evil. This scripture prompts my heart to be reminded of this way. God invites us into his wisdom in a few ways. One, to desire it at the top. Two, to do it. Old James said, if your, if your religion is true and it's good, you don't just hear God's word, but you want to do it. And then, of course, we see that modeled in Jesus. So number one, we respond to the will by desiring it. Number two, we respond by doing it. Number three, we respond to God's will by deferring to it, by deferring to it. There are times in our lives when we simply have to defer to the wisdom of God because what we currently understand doesn't satisfy that curiosity. So we defer to the wisdom of God. Three ways that we respond to the wisdom of God. We desire it. Number two, we do it. And also, we must, number three, defer to it. Now, we also said we would unpack the truth of God. Here it is. He is the true God, and in all his ways and his words are final and trustworthy. Psalm 119 verses 89 and following uh, speak to us in this way. Lord, your word is forever. True, trustworthy, right? It is firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is for all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands Firm. It hadn't gone anywhere. This is a declaration of the truthfulness, of the trustworthiness, and the faithfulness of God. But then we ourselves are called to be likewise. In what way? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 36 through 37, Jesus says this to his listening audience, which by extension would also be us. Don't swear by anything on earth or anything in heaven. You didn't make any of that stuff. But if you want credibility, faithfulness, and trustworthiness, let your yes be yes and let your no's be be knows, but don't feel like you need to swear by anything. Just live a life of faithfulness and consistency because that's what the Lord has done. His word stands and it does not waver. And so out of all this, you may be staggering again and say, how can I effectively live up to such a high call? Well, as we work out the communicable attributes, we see the need for communion with God become more absolute. You know me, I'm gonna say it again. As we work out these communicable attributes, we will discover more and more that communion with God is an absolute. It is within the framework of relationship with him that both he empowers us as his children and he enables us and shows us how to work out the communicable attributes in our daily contemporary lives. What does the expression of his wisdom, his will, and his faithfulness look like in us on our jobs, in our marriages, at our homes, in front of the television, on the internet. What does it look like? Communion helps provide the context where we make those great discoveries. Final point, and we're here. So we just covered the mental attributes of God. We started with the natural. We, we, we didn't extend it to the, uh, to the mental. And now we're moving to the moral attributes of God. Before we even unpack the moral attributes of God, I want to make you aware of this particular passage that I think gives us a great backdrop. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what, it, what, what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so you do not do what you want. 
This passage primarily calls us to be led by the Spirit. So what has God done here? That we might live out the communicable attributes or the moral attributes in this category? Because God has taken residence in the believer, he is constantly remodeling the moral standards of the believer. I cannot express the fruit of the Spirit, which will come later in that passage in Galatians 5. I can't express the fruit of the Spirit, nor can I express the moral standards of God unless my definition of what is good and moral is constantly being remodeled. I don't know how many of you watch the Property Brothers or any other show of its like where these real estate agents and uh, remodeling people go into uh, uh, homes and people are either desiring to stay in their home or to sell their homes. But I think you know the genre of shows that I'm referring to. I so oftentimes am offended on behalf of the homeowners because these remodeling people come in and completely with both paintbrush and sledgehammer and everything in between begin knocking out walls, tearing out tubs, adding on rooms, pointing out different stuff in the, in the, in the homeowner's home that says, this is hideous, this is garbage. How could you ever want to live like this? Have you ever seen those shows? Have you ever felt that tension? Well, guess what? That same kind of tension happens in our lives when God takes residence within us. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us according to the biblical testimony. And you know what God does? He comes with paintbrush and sledgehammer and begins remodeling our definition of good so that we can walk in the moral attributes. Because in our native state, we do not know what real morality is. Real morality or morality for us pre-Christ is typically just about managing what I look like publicly and trying not to get caught. You know what I mean. Have you ever had guests come to your house or be on the way to your house faster than you can effectively clean up? What do we do? Everybody starts running and pushing uh, laundry and all things that are out of place. We put them in every nook and cranny, closet and hole that we can find as a function of at least giving a public appearance of cleanliness and order. That's what morality looks like pre-Christ. We try to put our best foot forward and hide what is in our closet. We hide our dirty laundry. But in Christ, the Spirit does a work where he's not asking us to hide our dirty laundry. He actually cleans and cleanses our dirty laundry through the washing and renewing. Or as Titus chapter 3 verse 5 puts it, he saved us not by works of righteousness, not by hiding our dirty clothes or asking us to bring uh, whatever you know clean things that we thought, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. We need the active residency of God regenerating us through the Holy Spirit, knocking down walls and everything in our current lives that are are not responsive to the standard of God. And this is how we begin to reflect the moral standards of God. What is good? And this is the first, this is the attribute that I believe helps us to package many others in this final episode of the message here. Good is that which meets the approval of God in both form and function, effectively making God himself the standard of what is good. God doesn't defer to any outside standard to say what is good. It is, it is that which meets the, uh, the, the approval of God in form and function. When do we first hear God saying the words good? When he creates the heavens and the earth. He looks out and he says, you know what, that's good. That's very good. He looks at man by himself, no sin involved. Man's by himself, mm, that's not good. So that which meets the criteria of God in both form and function gets the designation of good. So our morality has to be overhauled so that we begin to buy into and embody God's definition of good. Because what was good for us prior to Christ is a completely different wavelength and ballgame than what equals good within Christ. 
So Psalm 34, 8 also has something to say about this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is a man that takes refuge in him? Isn't that an interesting statement? It doesn't just declare that God is good. It asks us, calls us to taste and see, to have a physical sensory experience with the goodness of God. The goodness of God should be commuted to our life and communicated from our lives. So what does this goodness of God look like? I'll tell you, there's a few ways. When, when, when God changes my standard of good, I now begin to see more clearly these other attributes, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, his generosity, and his justice. Keep up now, we're about to move fast. When we talk about the goodness of God, when God applies his goodness to, to human distress, that's called mercy. When God applies his goodness to the human deficiency to earn his love and grace, it's called, it's called his grace. Again, goodness of God applied to human distress. We're in pain. It's called mercy. The goodness of God applied to the human inability to live up to his holy standard and to earn anything from him. His goodness applied to that deficiency in us. It's called grace. The goodness of God applied to the longstanding defiance of a human being who knows the right to do but continues to do it his way. The goodness of God applied to the defiance of humanity is called his patience. The goodness of God, when applied to the overall need and well-being of man, where he gives nothing better than or nothing less than himself, it's called love. And that's why in the background, the backdrop, the foreground, the whole context of Jesus' work on the cross, we title it as, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In other words, God, in his goodness, desires the highest good for man, and therefore that application is called love. And what does love look like? It looks like Jesus on the cross. But there was one other attribute that I haven't quite described yet. Justice. Do you know that the justice of God, it is his goodness applied to the reality of unrighteousness in the earth. And God must deliver and respond to it in justice or else he becomes the eternal hypocrite if he lets sin slide. Wow, that's staggering. But do you recognize that on the cross of Christ, you are seeing the simultaneous expression of the love, the mercy, the, the patience, and the justice of God? Why? Because sin isn't allowed to just wiggle away unaddressed. Jesus Christ pays the price. God judges sin in the person of Christ by placing it on Christ and he becomes sin for us. The justice of God is in full view on the cross, but also is the mercy of God because we who are in distress find our savior there. We who, 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 have, who cannot accomplish our own highest good, love is there. We who cannot, we who have been disobedient to God and walking in patience, we find patience there on the cross because very, the very people that Jesus came to save spat on him and beat him. Jesus typified and embodied the patience of God. But also we see the grace of God. We couldn't earn that. Jesus had to pay. And so there at the cross, the communicable attributes of mercy, grace, generosity, God giving what we could, the goodness of God applied to the bankruptcy and deficiency of man. That's the generosity. That's the goodness of God. And here it is on the cross. We couldn't create, we couldn't create our own salvation. We couldn't muster enough righteousness. We couldn't purchase it. We were bankrupt people. And right there at the cross, the love of God, the justice of God, the generosity of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God, all magnified in that moment in the person of Christ. 
And so the Lord is still operating with a great degree of patience toward us and is not willing that any should perish, as you even heard during the devotional given by our, our brother Zach just a couple of days ago. But the patience of God is still on full display. And so if you're asking why isn't God coming in and dealing with the situation as it is now, oh, he's on the way. But glory be to God for his goodness being applied to our longstanding global national disobedience and even personal because God is patient. He's long-suffering. He, he hasn't lowered his standard. He's just allowing us to get on the bus. Thank you for that word, uh, Brother Zach. But I want you to hear me very clearly. The gospel is necessary because it is in it that we simultaneously see the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God poured out all at once in a beautiful display. And so it is not until the gospel is clearly contemplated, looked at by us, whether it be the childlike heart or either the seasoned seminary and adult heart. It is not until we constantly or not until it is both not until we see the gospel clearly that the attributes of God even become a reality to us and how we could possibly uh, participate in these things. It is the gospel that even after our initial pondering of the goodness of God and the way he pours himself out in the gospel, it's even after that that we need to constantly reweave the gospel into our daily reality because that is kind of the eternal pinch point where both eternity and the temporary world collide and our need for redemption is put on full display and so are the attributes of God. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, regardless of where you are, if you've been listening to this message, and we walk through just a handful of these attributes. They all point in unison to one thing. The best expression of these attributes are found in the person of Jesus. And the only opportunity for them to be fleshed out in any reputable way in our lives is that we are in Jesus. And you can't be in Jesus if you haven't responded to him and placed your faith in him. Remember, we are called to be imitators of God as dear children. God is not your father if you haven't placed faith in his son and become joint heirs with him. And if you have placed faith in him, but yet you are not actively being sanctified because you're unresponsive to the work of God to conform us to the image of Christ, you're not gonna see the communicable attributes worked out in your life. We need, if there was ever a time, to see the communicable attributes of patience and wisdom worked out in our lives. It's now. Well, that happens as we respond to the great work of God to conform us to the image of his son. As God is conforming us to the image of Christ, the communicable attributes become more and more visible and active on our lives. Don't leave the attributes of God on the shelf in your grocery store. Let's take them in wholeheartedly, open them up and implement them into our lives. Can we pray? Father God, we are thankful to you today that you would meet with us in such an incredible way. And we pray, oh God, that wherever in our lives we have a gap in understanding you, that we would, Lord God, lunge toward you and understand that, yeah, it's a supernatural work. It's not going to happen naturally. That we would move toward you and understand that it is a work of communion because we can't do it on our own. We would move towards you and say that this can't happen apart from the gospel. Lord God, give us a deeper curiosity for the expression of the gospel as an ongoing part of our lives and not just this initial bucket of beliefs that uh, 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 caused us to be called Christians. And this is our, uh, our prayer in your matchless and holy name.